From SGI USA, I'm Cassidy Bradford, and this is Bootability. The weekly series where I talk with Buddhists from all walks of life about the power we each have to change our lives and the world around us. To bring in the new year, we're doing something a little bit different for this episode, bringing you multiple stories, all based around a theme. We hope you enjoy. I think people started to ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, when I was maybe five, six years old. I didn't know anything existed beyond being a teacher, a firefighter, a mom, a magician. By the time I reached high school, I was dabbling in musical theater and working at a sandwich shop. I felt like I was wandering around in the dark, hoping that I might just discover some brightly lit path toward my future. Maybe a big sign confirming that this was indeed the correct path for my life. It didn't quite happen like that, but that's a story for another time. When I started my Buddhist practice in college, I was encouraged to have goals and dreams. But for some of us, it's hard to have dreams. We don't know what we want to do. For others, maybe it's challenging just to work toward the dream you've had since childhood. As we start a fresh year, I'm sure we're all evaluating our lives and what we want this year to look like. So today, we're talking about dreams. How do we allow ourselves to dream? How do we find purpose in our life? And if we have a dream, how on earth do we follow it? You're gonna hear from two young Buddhists, one who learned how to open herself up to possibilities, and another who found deeper meaning in his dreams. To remind myself of what it's like to be early on in discovering or following your dreams, I talked with four students. Hey guys, my name is Kyler. My name is Guthrie. I'm Ariana Haramil. My name is Mira. I aspire to contribute to the improvement of our planet and explore innovative ways to protect the environment and address climate change. I really aspire to make a positive impact on the lives of people around the world and contribute to a more interconnected and compassionate world. I really want to excel in my career and work towards uh, building sustainable energy with my mechanical engineering degree. I want to be an amazing friend and a compassionate individual. So when it comes to imagining my dream life, I want to be absolutely happy. My goal is to graduate from an MD-PhD program and really be able to contribute to science and be the best doctor that I can be. It's a little too early to tell what exactly that is, but that's my overall goal. Dreaming is exciting and daunting. There are endless possibilities. When you're young or your dreams are in their infancy, it can be especially easy to doubt whether they're possible. As a PhD student, I feel like every day is a battle. As much as I try to enjoy my program, I often struggle a lot with believing in my abilities. I have moments where I'm filled with doubts and worries, wondering if I'm doing the right thing or if I am smart enough to accomplish my dream. I'm still unsure about what it is I want to do in life. For a while, I feel I struggled having a dream or trying to figure out what my dream was. When I was younger, I had a lot of limited interests, but I feel those interests were kind of built on fears that I couldn't really do things in life. I asked them how they grapple with uncertainty about their future and capability. So I'll pull out my Living Buddhism and I'll kind of read something encouraging from there. 
And then another essential thing is really chanting each morning to activate that life force and that courage and compassion. I'll, I'll wake up and I'll be like, oh my God, this is the first battle. You know, oh, I have no clarity. I feel tired. I don't even want to chant. But I sit myself in front of the gods and, and I chant with an open heart. And that allows me to figure out what's most important. How do I want to use the limited time I have? We have everything within us to become happy. It sounds so easy and great to say it, but it's actually challenging to believe that I have everything it takes to reach my dream. Chanting consistently and especially chanting in the morning have helped me to dissipate those doubts and to work on my research with more confidence and optimism. So I guess the difference in my practice as well, really came from my positivity. Welcoming opportunity and with courage and conviction, really say that, you know, I can do this because why can't I? Why can't we follow our dreams? But what about those of us who don't have a dream? We don't quite know who we want to be or the kind of life we want to live. For Samantha Collins of St. Paul, Minnesota, it never really occurred to her to have a dream. She lived each moment in the now, focusing on what had to be done each day. As a child, I was very creative, but my job from the age of like five was school. Even leading up to a new school year, I would, you know, get the workbooks for like the next grade level and be doing them. I feel like the whole time I was in grade school, I never really understood what it meant to dream because I always felt like there was so much to do in the present. There was really no capacity in my system to even dream big. I really didn't know what I truly wanted in my heart. All she knew was that she loved school. So when it came to life after high school, the obvious next step was college. My first semester, I ended up choosing to be a math major, actually, because I was really good at math. And I ended up picking it because it was like, oh, everybody is reflecting for me how great I am at math. It took maybe a month for my whole system to be like, you are 0% interested <laughs> in math. And based on my mental health and also my dad's struggles with mental health, it kind of, for the first time, started to emerge in me this really sincere interest in the brain and in mental health. I just remember like this pure fascination kind of was my first insight into maybe a desire I had for a path I wanted. So she declared psychology as a major. With time, she grew fascinated by neuroscience and hard sciences involving the brain. As an education and science person, she had never really considered herself very spiritual. That all changed around the time she was finishing up college. Education was my religion. I felt like, you know, learning was the most powerful form of transformation and what would lead me to happiness. And senior year of college, my dad passed away. I had struggled with him for years prior, so my first reaction, aside from shock, was to just keep living my life. We kind of were a bit estranged at that point, so I think I convinced myself, like, nothing's changed. And it wasn't until April of the following year, I got into a huge car accident that I ended up being totally okay from. It rattled me enough to be like, what am I doing? Just, you know, same stuff, different day type of mentality, like grinding it out. And pretty quickly after that car accident, I just started to seek something beyond what I could see. That's when she dove into yoga and exploring spiritual practices to seek a deeper understanding of the meaning of life and death. I resonated with the idea of the universe 
and energy. And these are all things I still resonate with. Energy can't be created or destroyed, which is like a science concept of, you know, like when somebody passes away, their energy is still somewhere in the universe. Things like that really gave me a reprieve from the grind of daily life, like for the first time. I definitely found practices that relieved me temporarily, I would say, but I was suffering more than I ever had before. And I felt extremely aimless. I really sunk into probably like the deepest despair is the word that I can think of when I think of that time period. I had more knowledge of what was possible, but I didn't feel like I was actualizing anything in my daily life. Unhappy living in the same place she had her whole life and feeling purposeless, she decided to move. First, couch surfing with friends and family along the East Coast, and then visiting a friend in St. Paul, Minnesota. When she got off the plane, she felt something different. Hope. She moved within a month and a half to start her new life. Seeking community, Sam checked out a local event for vegans, and that's where she met a Buddhist. We didn't talk about Buddhism at all that night, but I just remember feeling really connected to her, and so we stayed in touch. I remember she gave me an intro to Buddhism book, maybe the second or third time we hung out. I'm like an avid reader, but I remember reading the book for the first time and being so confused. <laughs> I was like, what am I reading? What are these words? Nam myoho renge kyo, I don't get this. And it wasn't until I went to my first meeting where I like heard chanting and tried it for myself that when I went back to the book again, it all made sense. I think of that because it stands out to me like, oh, just trying to maybe take it in intellectually. Nothing was really resonating. But then when I tried it, when I went back to the book again, it was like, whoa, this is the most fascinating thing I've ever read in my life. <laughs> I remember first going into the center and hearing chanting. I even asked somebody in the front area. I, I was like, is that real people chanting? Like, It sounded so powerful. I, I thought it was a recording. And... When I went into the room, I just remember like my brain was like, I don't know what's going on, but something really deep in my life felt like this is significant. Try this. Just try it. And then when I was told, you know, there's this one phrase you can chant, this very tangible. I had never been handed something so tangible to do when it came to spirituality. It always felt like all of these elusive, multi-step things to do. I just remember being like, I'm gonna try this. I have nothing to lose. It's very tangible. I dove right in to chanting from that, from that day. She noticed that her anxiety had started to lessen and slowly she started to feel hope. For Samantha, that alone was enough for her to determine that this was the spiritual practice for her. As she started to get her head a bit above water, she decided to chant about her career. After college, she had felt pretty directionless and burnt out. It felt like I had been working my butt off for 20 years, or however old I was, and here I was being asked, like, and what are you going to do to keep grinding? What are you going to do to keep, like, working yourself to the bone? And I just remember being exhausted, like, exhausted with, like, the next step. As she explored spirituality after college, she found a form of bodywork that blended her love of neuroscience and the healing arts. It felt like, ah, this might be it. So after finishing massage therapy school, she started to work in the field. When she encountered Buddhism, she had been working in different clinics and decided that she wanted to open up her own practice. As she chanted about it, she realized something. I think I had blinders on of like, this is it. This is like the first time I felt locked into something. This must be it. 
and kind of using my own mental strategies to like make it happen, so to speak. And I remember it was the end of 2019. I just had this intuition, like even if I got to the place where I had a full-time practice and was working with clients constantly and my bills were paid, I don't actually think my heart would be fulfilled. And it was around that time that I talked to many Buddhist friends around this idea of fulfillment. You know, I always thought about a career is something that you're interested in and makes you money. Like, I think I only thought of it in through that lens. And it wasn't until this realization that I was like, no, it's the fulfillment part. Like, what does that even mean? Samantha decided to quit her job. She was still holding on to the idea of being her own boss. But through chanting about her next steps, started to see a different path open up. This felt like my wisdom and clarity from my practice finally coming through, like breaking through my really stubborn ego, (laughs) being like, maybe you're meant to just get a job and gain experience. And that was hard for me to kind of swallow because I wanted to feel like, no, I'm ready. I'm ready to own my own business. I'm ready to like make a lot of money and just like do it. But something in my life just really could feel like I was missing connections. I was missing experience. So the beginning of 2021, I started for the first time in years, like the whole resume process, and which I swore I'd never do. I was like, I never want to make a resume ever. Throughout her adult life, she had dedicated herself to a field that didn't fit into the conventional business world. Her insecurities hit hard when she started her job search, wondering how she would connect her experience to an office job. I was learning how to use my Buddhist practice in a more tangible way for the first time. You know, I would set goals, but they weren't specific. I had always heard of people writing out a list of everything they wanted in a job. And for the first time, I was like, maybe I'll try that. And I started really chanting about the qualities I wanted in the job. Like I knew that I wanted to learn constantly. I knew that I wanted to be around people. It was also like a salary minimum that I wanted. Very specific things, which felt super scary to write down for some reason. Maybe just the fear of not getting it. But you know, like it was this really tangible process of writing down my clear desires that I think really put me on the path to use my practice in a way I've never used it before. Like really face all of those parts of me that don't believe in myself, that don't believe I could have a job I really wanted, that didn't believe I deserved to have a job that I loved or that I, that fulfilled me. As Buddhists, we can directly challenge the inner voice that says we're incapable. We do it by chanting nam myoho renge kyo. That one action is us declaring that our lives are valuable. We're praising the Buddha nature in our lives. As Samantha wrote down specific goals and chanted about them, she faced her doubt head on, challenging herself to believe that it was possible. She applied to jobs from February to May without hearing a thing. But each day, she continued to chant and battle her doubts. I remember thinking, is anybody even seeing my applications? <laughs> like, are they just going into the, like, the cloud? I don't know. And in May, I, I got an interview with a company that I thought was like it. I was like, whoa, this is my dream job. I ended up getting rejected. And I remember at the time I was so shocked because I was fighting so hard with my practice. I was chanting a lot. I was visiting and connecting with many folks and chanting with them and studying. So I think there was like my arrogance a little bit. I have that tendency. My arrogance was like, I'm doing all the right things. So of course... 
I'm going to get this job. And that was such a turning point for me in my practice because it really taught me this new level of what it means to not give up. The attitude to never give up is central to Buddhism. The 13th century Buddhist reformer Nichiren Daishonin often spoke about victory in Buddhism. In a letter to one of his lay disciples, he wrote, Buddhism primarily concerns itself with victory or defeat. But what does winning mean in Buddhism? It's not just about achieving an end goal. Winning in Buddhism is about not being defeated. Buddhist philosopher Daisaku Ikeda says, If Buddhism is about winning, how do we win? It is with our hearts, our minds. The reason the Daishonin emphasizes that Buddhism is about winning is to drive home the importance of having the inner strength and fortitude to stand up to every obstacle and difficulty that arises in life. If we are faint-hearted and timid, we cannot win over negative functions in our own life or society. It brought up all these feelings of, oh, I'm, I'm not as good as I think I am. Everything it brought up was stuff that I really needed to see about myself. And continuing to practice through that, like the transformation that happened after that was just like internally, it was huge. And then I ended up landing what was actually my dream job just a few months later. And sometimes you don't get this hindsight reflection, but I ended up learning that the company I thought I really wanted, I learned all this really bizarre stuff about the company where I and again, you don't always get that, like the satisfaction, but I remember having such gratitude when I learned about it that I didn't get that job. I'm grateful that it took such a long time because my prayer really whittled down to the fundamentals of how do I want to feel in my job? How do I want to show up in this job? And it eventually got to this place where my prayer was, I never want to be bored. I want to talk all day long. Like I want to communicate and expand my capacity to know how to talk to people. She enjoyed this job for a few years. I really did check off everything on her list. Through the job and her Buddhist practice, she started to see herself more clearly. When we chant, we open up our Buddha eyes to our life. We gain clarity about our life. You know, looking back, this is where my life had to bring me because I just was so, I couldn't see my life clearly, but I was, I was getting there. So I, these were the qualities that I knew I wanted in my next job or in my career. I really wanted to be challenged. I had always felt a little intimidated by challenge up to that point, I think because I felt really incapable. But because of my experience and because of that job, my prayer started to be really deeply about, I want to be challenged. Right as she turned her sights toward next steps, she was asked to volunteer for a summer conference for elementary and middle school aged kids. Beyond being a summer camp counselor, she had never really seen herself as someone who loves kids. It's not that she didn't like them, but when she was asked to volunteer, she definitely scratched her head. She knew though, that because she had been challenging herself in her Buddhist practice, this opportunity was somehow a response to her prayers. I went showing up really intimidated. All my suffering kind of came out because I just felt so incapable of supporting these young people, like supporting our future. And I ended up having the time of my life where like by the end, I was like, oh my gosh, I wanna do this again. Like, this is amazing. Something just really cracked open in my life around like what it means to be childlike and to play. And I really, you know, intellectually I understood like supporting kids is supporting the future, but I think my life really felt it for the first time going to that conference. One of the things I heard at the conference was to challenge something, 
doesn't even matter what. Just pick something and challenge it. So I remember coming back home and having that like really simple but profound guidance in my heart and kind of felt like some pressure was released. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to take action in whatever direction. I'm just going to take it and trust my life. Then an idea popped into her head. Substitute teaching. A friend had casually mentioned to her and she thought, hmm, maybe that's something I could do for money. Since leaving the conference, she knew she wanted to somehow support the future by supporting kids. It felt like perfect, like a little sprinkling of supporting young minds. It was this very leisurely idea, and then I just started the process casually while applying to other jobs and things like that, still really going like all out with like Buddhist activities and chanting. After a few weeks of applying for sub positions, she was invited to interview at a charter school. It was in this interview that I felt like my environment was finally reflecting where I was meant to be because after our dialogue and him like asking me questions, he looked at me and was like, I've been doing this a long time and I know an educator when I see one. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like (laughs) this is crazy. Like finally somebody really saw the depths of my life and saw that I could do this. It turns out, in Minnesota, charter schools can help new teachers with licensing, so she wouldn't need to go back to school to become a full-time teacher. She started to casually search for full-time roles and found a school with a mission and values that resonated. She opened the application, added her contact info. Tired from the day, though, she decided she'd fill out the rest tomorrow. Very next day, the principal of that school calls me, and this was beginning of August. We talk a lot about chanting puts you in rhythm with the universe. Like, the timing of this schools were ferociously looking to fill vacant teacher positions and i you know i didn't think about that i was just like doing my life like <laughs> taking action and long story short this principal invited me in for an interview that next day even though what i was essentially saying to this man was i have no experience on paper but here's why i'm qualified to take on this challenge and that my answers really were rooted in Buddhist philosophy around like supporting humanity and treasuring the person in front of you and supporting the future. Reflecting about all those times I felt so incapable of getting a job. Here I was at an interview without much experience, but I had life experience that made me feel very confident. Like I can do this. She learned they had an open middle school science teacher role and she lit up. I mean, science is, that's what I went to school for. Like that is what I'm so fascinated by. So he like took me around the school, answered a bunch of my questions, and I left feeling like, oh my gosh, I really want this job. And I put my whole life into that application and into the cover letter. All the years of confidence that I like cultivated felt like it just poured out into this cover letter. And even still, I was having some nightmares around like standing in front of a middle school class. I was like, they're gonna hurt my feelings. <laughs> like they're gonna, it's gonna be so scary. This all happened so fast, but I was battling deep fear as well. You know, even though something deep in my life knew I could do it, there also was that lesser self part of me that was terrified. And almost to the point where I was like, you can't do this, it's too scary, it's too much. Although she was afraid, Through her years of Buddhist practice, she had come to master the internal battle required to challenge ourselves. This battle with our lesser self, the self that's only focused on personal concerns, is what we call human revolution. 
In the book, The Wisdom for Creating Happiness and Peace, Daisaku Ikeda described human revolution as a revolution in our actions and behavior. It means to purposefully engage in behavior that is grounded in compassion and actions that break free from the cycle of the six paths and bring us to the world of bodhisattva and buddhas. This can look like a student who maybe is only focused on school and enjoying themselves, but then decides to expand their concern to others, to society, and take action. Or maybe the moment when you think, I just want to go to bed instead of brushing my teeth and washing my face, but instead of giving in, you walk to the bathroom instead of your bed. These moments, even if only a determination to make a change, is human revolution. Ikeda goes on to say, Human revolution is opening our eyes wide and looking beyond our ordinary concerns, striving for and dedicating your actions to something higher, deeper, and broader. In our Buddhist community, we often speak about winning over our lesser selves. This looks like chanting in the morning and evening to bring out the best part of ourselves to beat out the things that lead us to suffering. This is the kind of challenge that Samantha had spent years waging, strengthening her ability day to day to win over her lesser self. The joy I've experienced after challenging myself in my Buddhist practice is comparable to nothing. So I feel like having that experience again and again and again, when it came to this, I feel like knowing that it felt so challenging and that it was going to be so challenging, it almost felt like that gave me these like arrows that I was in the going in the right direction instead of you know if I was presented with a job and I felt like oh I got this I'm gonna rock this it's in the bag (laughs) like there's not gonna be a challenge at all I almost feel like that would have been a sign for me personally that that wasn't the right path for me within days she was hired and started almost immediately it was a whirlwind my first day was awful it was so hard (laughs) and I actually documented I took a picture of me like bawling my eyes out it's almost like something in my life new like you're not gonna quit you're gonna find your stride I took a picture so that someday I could look back and be like look at how far you've come (laughs) and that night I ended up calling a Buddhist friend who she's also in the field of education so she knows like the ins and outs but I called her completely sobbing just being like I think, I feel like I made a mistake and, oh, it was so painful. And she just really encouraged me. She's like, Samantha, this is why we practice. Like we face these gut-wrenching emotions and challenges. And because we do, we go back with such strong determination. She's like, she's like, it probably feels impossible to go back tomorrow, right? And I was like, yeah. She's like, so how deeply are you going to chant tonight and tomorrow morning? (laughs) And, you know, she was exactly right. I've had really challenging days where I'm just like empty by the end of it. And the place it makes me go in the depths of my heart to like fight and redetermine to show up the next day and have more energy or like talk to this student differently or like have a conversation I need to have. This job was completely unexpected for Samantha. Now, though, she can look back at her entire life, the job she had, the kind of person she is, and see how she so obviously should be a teacher. But she appreciates each and every step of the way because she gathered valuable skills and lessons. She learned about what fulfills her. She developed that intangible skill you need to become happy, unshakable conviction in the power of her life. In a dialogue with students, Buddhist philosopher Daisaku Ikeda said, Not many can find the perfect job from the start. Some may have a job they like, but isn't putting food on the table. Or their job pays well, but they hate it. That's the way things go sometimes. 
Also, some discover that they're just not cut out for the career they dreamed of or aspired to. Second Tokugakai president Jose Toda said that the most important thing is to first become indispensable wherever you are. Instead of moaning that a job differs from what you'd like to be doing, he said, become a first-class individual at that job. This will open the path leading to your next phase of life, during which you should also continue doing your best. Such continuous efforts are guaranteed to land you a job that you like, that supports your life, and that allows you to contribute to society. Then, when you look back later, you will see how all your past efforts have become precious assets in your ideal field. You will realize that none of your efforts and hardship have been wasted. Mr. Toda taught that this is the great benefit of the mystic law. Hearing Sam's story, I saw myself. When someone looks at each chapter of my life in isolation, they may seem unrelated. Some might seem like an unnecessary detour. But from the perspective of Buddhism, if we exert ourselves in each moment, we'll come to find that everything served an important purpose for the development in our life. With my own windy journey, I've always been fascinated about people who had a clear dream from a young age. That kind of person seemed like a unicorn to me. They must have a perfect and easy life, right? To find out, I spoke with a freelance musician, Grady Tesh of New York City. Since Grady's local, I invited him over to my office and we had a great dialogue. Grady grew up in a small town in Utah with a supportive family. Music was in his life from a young age. Rather than being asked whether he was interested in music, he was asked which instrument he wanted to play. But just because a parent hands you an instrument doesn't mean you're actually going to have a passion for it. So I was curious to know where he first felt the spark. He was in middle school when his brother brought home some jazz records. When Grady heard one, he fell in love. I felt like there was something um, in the music that was kind of like uh, elevating. I just had this kind of intuitive sense like it wasn't just about the notes and it wasn't just about the rhythms and them sounding good or whatever, but that like there was a certain energy that was getting expressed that was like beyond, you know, um, just the sound. And I just kind of like decided like I wanted to figure out what this was and how to get how to get access to it, you know, or how to like how to live like that. And from that point forward, Grady dedicated himself to music. He wanted to be good at something and wanted to define himself in an age when you're still figuring out your identity. At the time, though, he wasn't dreaming of becoming a full-time musician. I, 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 I don't know if a dream necessarily, but as much as it was like, it just felt the thing that like I loved to do and that I really felt like, um, I guess, at home with. And like mm. I felt like I loved doing it. And it, it didn't feel easy. I didn't feel like I was the most talented person. I had a desire to excel, but I feel like, you know, many of my peers honestly felt like more able or technical. But I think, yeah, in my heart, it just felt like the thing that I loved, you know, and that I kind of just, yeah, I, I guess I made a decision that I needed to, you know, follow my heart and that if I didn't, that I probably would regret it. There was someone that was close to me in my, I guess, in high school who, who just said to me, like, you know, yeah, you should you should do what you love, you know, and try to do it and... And so that's what Grady did. After applying to a variety of colleges, he landed at New York University. His first year was a roller coaster. My first semester, I think I was, you know, excited to be in the city, you know, just like partying, going mm-hmm. places, you know. At the same time, like I was using Adderall, mm-hmm. um, which at the time was prescribed for me, but like 
I definitely, uh, you know, I was getting to a point where I was like, I essentially felt like I couldn't be myself without using it. You know, if you take enough, you don't really feel like you need to sleep and you don't really feel mm-hmm. like you need to eat. Mm-hmm. And um, that's definitely where I was feeling. Essentially, like, between my first and second semester, I really disliked the feeling of feeling like I needed to take a drug to be myself. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of like went cold turkey. That compounded on essentially like this kind of almost like manic episode that I was going through yeah. of like just like going, 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 you know, I really crashed. Mm-hmm. And um, my second semester was like one of the toughest places I've been in my life. I'd always been an outgoing person, but then I suddenly found myself closing off. I found it hard to talk to people. I felt like I started having these crazy mood swings where I didn't know how I would feel moment to moment. And um, Grady went home for the summer and hadn't planned on returning. He had lost any spirit or joy for life. One day, though, he found an album by the late Wayne Shorter, a jazz musician and an SGI Nitran Buddhist. There was something in the sound of that album that just gave me hope. And like I could hear in the way that Wayne was playing and the band was reacting, I just kind of heard this like raw, like fighting spirit, I guess, for lack of a better word. And it really gave me a deep, like it gave me a sense of hope when I listened to it, you know? Mm. It kind of gave me a sense of relief of like, I, I don't know, like it gave me a sense like there's a way out. You know, I think at that time I was like exploring other things. Like I went to like a Zen Buddhist temple for a few weeks. I was trying to find something that would kind of help my mind calm down. And mm. when I did that, like I felt like I could get kind of in a calm space. But then like once I was out, like I was back into the chaos and, mm-hmm. you know, still. So I was like, I got to see what Wayne is doing. So I, I got his biography and in his biography, he talked about being SGI Nichiren Buddhist and chanting. And as soon as I found that, I just, you know, researched it and I like found a YouTube video on how to chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo and taught myself and, um, <laughs> you know, immediately started chanting that day. I think like my life was in such a raw place mm-hmm. that chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo immediately like had a visceral effect. I felt like this, I guess, like inner strength, which was like the thing I really didn't feel at that time. I think at the time I felt powerless and, and really you know, lacking a sense of self and Channing just, it just, I felt something deep in my life that said, you're going to be fine. And that was the thing I really needed to feel in that moment. And, um, and uh, you know. So I just... Grady's mom had also been going through a difficult time and she had noticed that Grady was smiling all the time. She asked him what he was doing and shortly after started her own practice. They both found that the inner conditions of their lives started to elevate. With a fresh attitude, Grady decided to go back to NYU in the fall. As soon as he returned, he found his local SGI Nichiren Buddhist Community Center and walked right in. Um, uh, popped in and was like, hey, I've been chanting for the past three months and, <laughs> you know, can I get connected? Yeah, I, you know, started finding out deeper about this practice and, you know, I got immediately introduced to the idea that, you know, taking care of others and supporting others is, is an integral part of living a happy life. And that we can't be happy unless the people around us are happy and our community and our world is happy. Like, you know, it's, it's not separated. This this concept of inter, interdependence, you know, is it's real. And I guess to like close off and say, like, I'll be fine is uh, not really a way to lead a happy life. One thing I, you know, I, I started doing pretty early on in my Buddhist practice was just introducing other people to the practice. And, um, you know, it, was, it just felt like this thing that had really helped me and was helping me. And I think, like, I really found the joy in, like, supporting other people. I, I noticed that, like, when I started supporting other people that my own problems and difficulties and challenges 
started to seem smaller and more and more like I can overcome these. I felt like I kind of was breaking out of the bubble of my lesser self mm-hmm. um, into like a larger self that could care mm-hmm. for other people. And um, you know, I remember- Grady supported students who were fellow Buddhist community members. They would get together, chant, talk about what they were going through, and then study Buddhism together to get encouraged to keep on going. Before that, I was really a person, someone who just, you know, really only cared about my own desires, wants, needs, you know. I I think, like, when I started practicing for others and, you know, supporting others that um, I realized that, like, yeah, just living for yourself is really limited and that, like, the treasures that you build from expanding your life to embrace other people is, Mm -hmm. like, something that, like, sticks with you. It's not like I would sacrifice my own personal dreams, goals, but that when I did reach a goal that I had set or, you know, overcome a certain struggle that like it became so much more meaningful. I could share with others and use it to encourage others. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it wasn't like Sam. Like, Grady was learning how to engage in his human revolution, expanding his life beyond his own immediate concerns. I wondered how this process and Buddhism impacted his musical practice. Grady brought it back to the moment he first heard Wayne Shorter's album. You know, those albums that first got me into jazz, like, felt like, yeah, this humanity and this energy of, like, elevating. And then and then I think when I heard the Wayne Shorter album, Without a Net, it was, like, it was, like, the raw, unfiltered version of that. Like, it just mm. felt like it was just such raw creativity mm. and, like, raw life condition, you know, mm. like, just raw life. Like, and... um not in a way of like raw, like emotional, like, oh, this happened to me. You know, like not raw, <laughs> but like powerful, like really this deep creative force. There's just something like, yeah, so like it's like not pretty. It's not like, it's not a bow tie on it. It's not dressed up, but it's like just so real. I don't know, like there's something in it that's like maybe even can't even be put to words, you know? Like I felt like when I started practicing Buddhism, I was like, this is what I heard, like this humanity. You know, mm. like this is what I was looking for, like just that humanity that I first heard in the music, mm. you know, that like even more than the notes and rhythms caught my ear. I, I was always looking for it, but I think I thought I would find it in the notes and rhythms. But as, as my music practice kept going, I realized it wasn't in the notes and rhythms. Like I, I was learning those and those are good. Those were, that was language. But that I realized like the notes and rhythms are reflecting my own heart. When I started practicing Buddhism, I was like, yeah, I, I touched on that source of the heart and, mm. and the humanity. Although I'm definitely not a musician, as I listened to Grady, I knew exactly what he was talking about because I've experienced it myself when I chant. Writing about this, Daisaku Ikeda says, Our bodies are a microcosm of the universe. Not only are they made of the same matter as the universe, but they also follow the same process of generation and disintegration, the same rhythm of life and death that pervades the cosmos. All physical laws, such as gravity and the conservation of energy, also affect and operate in the microcosm of each living entity. He goes on to say that when we chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, the microcosm of our individual lives harmonizes seamlessly with the macrocosm of the universe. It is a sublime ceremony, an action through which we fully open the storehouse of treasures within. We can thereby tap into the wellspring of life force in the depths of our own beings. We can access the source of inexhaustible wisdom, compassion, and courage. This relationship is almost like a dialogue, which Grady says is connected to jazz. 
playing jazz music, it's a conversation between um, the musicians. And like any conversation, it's it's a listening experience. I think like becoming a, a, a really deep and, and active listener. I notice that like if I'm like taking a solo, I can really bully my idea. I, I think when I play like that, I've noticed that like the musicians around me will not feel included. The inner actual energy and everyone feeling valued and lifted on the band stage won't happen. But that when I play something and then let other musicians respond and then hear them out and see where it goes and really allow my own plan or my own preconceptions kind of be put to the wayside and decide that I'm going to really become a great listener. The next thing I play, how can it enhance what's going to happen? How can it shine a spotlight on someone else, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something I really learned from Buddhism. One thing that's really impacted me is reading dialogues that Dasako Akira has had with great thinkers, and, and he shows such genuine curiosity and generosity in conversation, you know, that he's willing to take conversations to places that aren't just necessarily in his wheelhouse or in his range, but like this kind of like spontaneity and, and journey that those dialogues take are so exciting. Yeah, I've been so inspired by by his example of dialogue mm-hmm. and um, his spirit to like treasure and like find the, that thing in a person that is so amazing and shine a light on them. His dialogues have had, had such a um, feeling of mutual encouragement. I try to take that on stage as well, that mm-hmm. as musicians on stage, we're trying to encourage each other and then we're trying to encourage an audience too. I wondered what his music might've been like without Buddhism. It was hard for him to say. So he reflected on what it was like before he encountered Buddhism. I felt like it was more more self-centered, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I think I, I had this goal of let me play the best licks and things that will get applause and that, you know, sound good. And, yeah, things that will kind of, like, make me look good, mm-hmm. you know. I, I think I, I had this desire to reach a deeper creative point, but um, I don't think I had the principles or the life condition to mm-hmm. really get there. Like, I think because... My own life was just centered around achieving my own desires. Of course, it's going to get reflected in my, you know, my practice of art. And when you're in the moment of improvisation, you know, it's like it's not a premeditated moment. And so I think wherever you're coming from ends up coming out at that moment, you know. And um, so in anything that we do, we might feel like we're simply using our heads. But I think we sometimes forget that our hearts are just as much a part of it. We bring our entire selves to everything our lived experiences, and whatever philosophical approach we have to life. While we may have a life philosophy we agree with, it can be challenging to embody the principles. This is why, for Grady, having a daily Buddhist practice is fundamental. Some of the principles that I feel like I've been able to apply now, before Buddhism, I think I had the intellectual desire to reach them, or at least capacity to recognize them. But I don't think I had a practice to really, yeah, concretely, Mm -hmm. like challenge reflect and you know mm-hmm. you know deepen my own practice of caring for others interpret interdependence listening you know yeah it's definitely it's one thing to like talk about these concepts and to acknowledge the benefit of them and it's it's just a whole different ball game to practice them and you know mm-hmm. um, I'm not saying I'm perfect I'm definitely not and, <laughs> and you know but I really appreciate my Buddhist practice because it keeps bringing me back to this point of when I'm not mm-hmm. that like my SJ community and around me it's just there's a constant reminder to like work on practicing having more wisdom more compassion more courage you know and um 
Although Grady had experienced great things since starting his practice, we know that we don't just stop having problems because we practice Buddhism. So yeah, I mean, I like I graduated, and then I think you know my dream was to be yeah full time musician doing it, and um, yeah, pretty quickly I was folding T-shirts at Uniqlo, and uh, <laughs> and like. <laughs> You know, taught like a bucket drumming class in like the middle of the Bronx. That was like, yeah, like a pretty crazy commute. I was like pretty strapped for cash. And like, I remember at the homeless shelter, like there would be like school meals for kids, mm-hmm. you know, and then kids would take it. And then at the end of the night, if there was stuff left, I would like take like the school lunches home for mm-hmm. my own lunch and dinner and stuff. Mm-hmm. And got pretty acquainted with the public school system lunch <laughs> lunch menu. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think, you know, it, it was rough. And then because of the this reality, my dream of being a, of a musician, doing it as my career, as my profession was like, kind of felt like it was starting to get eroded, you know, and my idea mm. of what was going to happen, you know. And um, so, like, I started, like, looking at other different paths. I was like, okay, maybe I'll... He thought about maybe working for an arts organization or something related to music. He talked with a Buddhist friend about some more practical paths for his life. The friend warmly said, it seems like you've given up on your dreams only three months out of college. I was like, wow, like actually in my heart, I have given up on my dream. And I think I definitely realized that moment that a determination has to constantly be refreshed, you know, um, but it was definitely that became this wake up call of like, um, wow, okay, let me reassess where my life's at and like, where, where am I, what am I operating on? And I've, you know, I've felt like deep appreciation for my... Throughout the 10 years of his practice... Grady has always been able to rely on his Buddhist community, who continuously encourage him to keep fighting. Within the box of like musician or creative field, like the realities of of doing like being in a creative field and trying to do that as a profession, it's just hard, you know. And it's mm-hmm. it's 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 a wild, it's a very, it's not a safe. Just my community is like constantly, you know, mm-hmm. held me accountable to myself and my dreams mm-hmm. and also like motivated and encouraged me mm-hmm. and uplifted me to always take action. And so I think from that point, I really started to decide like, okay, I'm going to be a person of cause and not effect. Mm-hmm. And um, so- The 13th century Buddhist reformer Nichiren Daishonin famously shared, if you want to understand the causes that existed in the past, look at the results as they are manifested in the present. And if you want to understand what results will be manifested in the future, Look at the causes that exist in the present. And so Grady took that Buddhist guidance to heart. He decided to think about the causes that he could make to get to the future he wanted. He found a music program that he was interested in teaching in, but they didn't have any percussion program or open positions. He decided to make a cause toward landing a job in his field, and so applied anyway. He kept chanting, studying, and joining Buddhist meetings. In a few months, they reached out to offer him a role in their inaugural percussion program. He loved it there, eventually becoming a lead teacher. As his freelance work reached a critical mass, though, he decided to take the leap and become a full-time freelance musician. But I mean, it was scary, you know, it was a very like, you know, as being a freelance musician to this day, it's like, it was kind of this constant anxiety of like, you just don't know where your next paycheck is coming from or mm-hmm. where work's coming from. Will next month be okay? It's afforded its benefits of creating your own schedule and all these things, which is totally different discussion, but uh, <laughs> being your own boss. But then there's like this kind of like at a layer of the, the security of it, you know, is, is you know, it, it's, it's real, you know? And so I think my, I definitely think my Buddhist practice allowed me though to like have the confidence to make the leap. Through my Buddhist practice, I really feel this deep confidence of being in rhythm with the universe. I definitely have developed this conviction of like, as long as I know I'm making causes and I'm 
doing my honest best and chanting and like helping others that you know I don't know I guess this deep confidence of being in rhythm you know mm-hmm. with with my life and with the universe and kind of like being able to trust taking steps in my life we've talked about this quite a few times on the podcast as you continue to prove the power of your life to yourself you gain deeper and deeper confidence that you'll be happy no matter what um, I, I don't feel like my happiness or my life condition or where I'm at is is dependent on my circumstances outwardly mm-hmm. you know and um I can tap into this generative, creative life force that's in my own life. And that's the source of my joy. That's the source of my movement in life and and where I'm going. And um, I can handle outward stuff. I I got the confidence that my life is bigger than those problems. I mean, I think the really scary thing, honestly, to do at first is to have a a situation where you're really struggling and then try to tackle it with your Buddhist practice. That's I think that's that's the scary situation because you know you might like you have to deal with the fear of like what if this doesn't work and what if I do my Buddhist practice and take action and nothing happens and I think that's where like you know in some degrees like faith comes involved intellectually maybe impossible to really see how big your life is and how much it's capable of but that like when you do use your Buddhist practice like bring out the qualities that you need to overcome in a circumstance and then you take serious action I definitely have found that I've, I've, I've built the confidence to overcome anything, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Grady is now living his dream and doing it joyfully, even with the challenges. As someone who had considered pursuing art, I had thought that maybe making my passion what I did for money would suck the joy out of it. So I asked Grady about this. I think like there's this maybe, maybe people assume that like once you like, you know, like I'm doing freelance musicianship 100% now, right? It's not like you get to just do what you want to do, you know. <laughs> and 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 you also you'll be put into challenging situations, you know, where you have to find figure out what to do. And then I, I think it's also really difficult to be your own boss. No one's I don't know. No one's doing roll call. There's no company company health insurance. There's mm-hmm. no you know. You have to f- find them out on your own. And and um, there's all these realities, right? Like my Buddhist practice has allowed me to reflect on myself a lot mm-hmm. and to um, you know redetermine and being my own boss I constantly have to reflect on myself and be, and, and and then redetermine you know <laughs> I think it, like it's it's given me like a kind of built-in way to do that mm-hmm. and I think there's also this idea of that like once you reach this spot you're going to be happy because like you're doing your what your your passion is for your life you know but because of all the things I just stated it's like no there's like you know there's realities you're going to deal with and I think even the music itself you know like even if you could just do your art all the time you know, would that really make you happy? And, you know, like playing music is my passion. But um, one thing I've, you know, realized is that like playing is an expression of your own inner life. It's it's an expression of your heart. And um, the music itself, to my experience, isn't the joy, you know. It's, mm-hmm. it's a mirror of the joy you feel in your life. It's mm-hmm. the mirror of your inner life. It's the mirror of the rich experiences you have. And, um, you know, so the richer and deeper and and more solid your own inner life is, the more that your practice, whatever art practice I think you have, will become deeper and more rich and, you know, imbued with, like, the power of your heart. I feel like I sometimes see friends who are musicians or who, like, I think maybe feel like the music itself is the thing that will bring them joy is the thing that will bring them 
whatever uh, a solid way of life or solid a sense of consistency or something but my personal experience has always been that like actually comes from within and then is expressed you know without and sometimes I like to think about like my role you know or, or our roles as creative people within the world it's like I feel like my role is to encourage and it's to um, create something that's gonna make another person's life better and you know elevate and enhance their own situation and you know that's great music that I've listened to and enjoyed that's what it's always done for me Hearing from Samantha and Grady, I came to realize a few things. First, the process of figuring out and following your dreams is hard. And maybe that's not a realization, but more of a confirmation. The long and sometimes winding path is critical for us to develop ourselves and become happy. But the long and sometimes winding path is critical for us to develop ourselves and become happy. Each step of the way, we build the skills we need to accomplish our dreams. Second, whatever our dreams are, creating a peaceful society, contributing to science, building a family. The dream is really just a reflection of our inner lives. Our dreams can become hollow or unfulfilling if our inner life isn't shining. This doesn't mean just being happy, because all life states, emotions, they're all part of being human but it does mean having a strong life force forged through challenging ourselves. Third, dreams are always evolving. Sam is thinking about where she wants to go next in the world of education. Becoming a teacher has opened a world of possibilities for her, and now she's dreaming bigger than she ever has. Grady wants to take everything he's doing to the next level, like exploring new musical collaborations and headlining festivals. So I hope that wherever you are in your life, you have a dream. And if you've accomplished that dream, I hope you have an even bigger one. And that's all for this week. Happy New Year, everyone. <laughs>